When you click on troubledteens.com, the first thing that will catch your eye is a group of smiling youth. Their arms are around each other in a way that makes you think they're lifelong friends. In bold white letters across the photo, the site states, Every child deserves the opportunity to fulfill their potential. As you scroll down, questions are thrown at you to see if your child is indeed a troubled teen. Does your teenager use drugs or abuse alcohol? Is your teen suffering from PTSD, depression, anxiety, ADHD, or learning disabilities? If you answered yes to any of these questions, your child is in need of a therapeutic residential treatment. The site describes therapeutic boarding schools as programs that specialize in structure to improve a teen's emotional, physical, and academic development. And this is done so by, quote, working through the root cause of the problem within troubled teens. If the site said what it really meant, it might read like this. A year of residential treatment will only cost you the average four-year college tuition, but the memories will haunt them for a lifetime. They'll be kidnapped in the middle of the night and flown or driven to one of our many million-dollar facilities in the middle of nowhere, so there's no chance for escape. Here, they'll be beaten, tied up, locked in dog cages, forced to eat their own vomit, isolated, humiliated, and much more. And no, I didn't make any of that up. That's testimony from real teens who experienced hell inside Cross Creek Manor in Laverkin, Utah. The school was founded in 1988 by Robert Litchfield, and the program accepted troubled girls aged 13 to 18. A few years later, Cross Creek Center would open nearby to house the teen boys. In 1998, Litchfield would create the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs in Schools, or WWASP for short, because most people take off the S for schools. Cross Creek was the first school to come under this company, but eventually Litchfield would open dozens of these teen programs across the United States and in a few other countries as well. WWASP is the most notable company when it comes to these abusive residential programs because it was the largest, most profitable, and has faced lawsuits from hundreds of people. They didn't just operate the schools, they used cruel methods to make the maximum profit. They owned companies that would take teens from their beds and transport them to the facilities, marketing firms and websites designed to bring in as many kids as possible, as well as businesses that build the families as well. It didn't matter if a teen was truly troubled or not. If their parents were willing to pay, they would let them in. The WWASP would eventually crumble around the early 2000s when a number of allegations and lawsuits occurred. Over two dozen programs associated with the company has since closed. Many of these facilities still operate today, just under new ownership and new names. The organization no longer exists. However, many independent facilities still function under the same controversial model and employ the same brutal staff. According to WWASPSurvivors.com, quote, Directly or through a convoluted web of corporations, Robert Litchfield still owns some of these facilities. Name changes and attempts to obscure ownership were common among WWASP facilities, and this tradition continues among its successors. For this reason, information can be hard to gather or verify. End quote. So you may be wondering, how has this been able to go on for so long? Well, children and teens were so traumatized by this experience that they felt like they couldn't speak up, 
They were punished for speaking up. They were even told that their parents knew about the abuse that was going on and that they were happy about it. These programs used similar tactics to the most wicked cults to silence their victims. Within the past decade, survivors and activists have finally been given platforms to speak out about the abuse they endured. Well-known celebrities who have been forced through these programs are bringing a spotlight to the topic. Paris Hilton is one of those celebrities, and you may or may not like or care for Paris Hilton, but no one deserves to go through this experience. In 1998, this is what she went through. Quote, When I was 16, two transporters woke me up in the middle of the night with handcuffs. They asked me if I wanted to go the easy way or the hard way. They carried me out of my home as I screamed at the top of my lungs for my parents' help. Paris was taken to the Provo Canyon School, where she was abused on a daily basis for 11 whole months. The school was opened in 1971. And, side note, Robert Litchfield worked as the director of residential living at Provo before he even opened Cross Creek School. A news article from 2003 reported that the monthly cost of sending a teen to Provo Canyon was around $4,000 a month. Today, that would be around $6,400 a month. Paris Hilton had actually been to two different behavior modification programs, but Provo Canyon was the last, and according to her, the most cruel. She stated, quote, You're sitting on a chair, staring at a wall all day long, getting yelled at or hit. I felt like a lot of the people who worked there got off on torturing children and seeing them naked. They would prescribe everyone all these pills. I didn't know what they were giving me. I would just feel so tired and numb. Some people in that place were just gone. Like, lights were on, no one's home. So eventually I found out a way to not take the pills. But everyone would tell on everyone, and they found a Kleenex with all of the pills in it. I got in so much trouble for that. Solitary confinement. They'd make people take their clothes off and go in there for like 20 hours. I felt like I was going crazy. Someone was in the other room in a straitjacket, screaming. I was freezing. I was starving. I was alone. I was scared. I don't know if my nightmares will ever go away, but I do know that there's probably hundreds of thousands of kids who are going through the same thing right now. I want these places shut down. I want them to be held accountable. And I want to be a voice for children, and now adults everywhere, who have had similar experiences. I want it to stop for good, and I will do whatever I can to make it happen. End quote. Now that you've heard some of Paris Hilton's story, I'm going to share more stories from survivors. All of these are published on the WWASP Survivors website. These stories are much more detailed and graphic than what I've shared so far, and they're going to be trimmed down a little bit so I can share the perspectives of several people. This first survivor statement is from a woman named Angelique. In May of 1993, I was sent to a girl's home called Cross Creek Manor in southern Utah where I lived for four and a half months. While attending, I was physically attacked suffocated, tormented, and put in isolation on a regular basis for three-day periods at a time. I was denied all access to communicate with the outside. On one occasion, a staff member, while invading my privacy, told me I wiped the wrong way after using the toilet. In addition, I was put on unprescribed and inappropriate medication 
that created physical side effects. Essentially, I was drugged. The primary difference between prisons and residential centers today is that prisoners are allowed a lawyer and a phone call. While attending, I was deprived of an education, lied to, and my mail was confiscated. I was denied appropriate exercise, sanitary conditions, and emotional-slash-medical attention. I also slept on a floor in the isolation room, where I peed to avoid staff monitoring me in the bathroom and making sick remarks. From the beginning, I found myself forced into writing essays about how bad I was that took several hours to complete per essay. The first one was about being a liar because I showered at the wrong time, having not been informed there was a shower schedule. That incident landed me in a three-day isolation, a room with white walls, not much larger than a twin bed. After that, I wrote a letter to friends asking them to come get me, even though I had no real idea where I was. We traveled through the night. That was a turning point for the worst, and staff repeatedly put me in isolation. One time I sat down on the bed, and the frame gave way, so they added three more days to my solitary confinement. I speculated that the bed was already broken, because the other isolation room had no bed at all. Despite the innocent nature of the incident, it was termed destruction of property and malicious mischief. As for the cause of the later accusation, I had to put the bed upright so I could find enough space to sleep on the floor. Both resulted in essays and more isolation. My independent education packets never came, and I later learned that the organization was caught up in one of the biggest education scams, having issued 113 fake diplomas just at one school alone in New York. The worst incident I experienced in Utah was when I was put face first against a wall for over 10 hours and then told to stand on my tiptoes to reach a dot taped to the wall with my nose. The verbal taunting, enjoyment of this staff member, and the aggravation of not being able to do anything but stare at a wall led me to turn the corner, and there I had two men that grabbed me and threw me in the isolation room again. This time, they jumped me, put me in a painful police-like lock position with my arms behind my back while they bashed my head into the floor causing significant damage and a large visible facial laceration. They then proceeded to sit on me so I couldn't breathe, and after gasping several times for air and pleading for my life, I became speechless. I was certain they would kill me, and they would get away with it. No one would have known about it, because they were able to do all this other abuse. Why wouldn't they get away with killing me? There was no one there to stop them, and maybe no one cared. So as I became asphyxiated and unable to save myself, the young staff member they had put in charge of me to make sure I didn't try to leave looked completely shocked, and it was perhaps that look of shock that saved my life. Not all kids are that fortunate. About a dozen kids die every year in programs from abuse or torture-like compression suffocation. When I came out of isolation, my face would twitch oddly, not like an eye twitch but a full muscle spasm. It continued so much that I became worried that people would see and think I was weird. I also frequently lost control of my bladder. Unfortunately, we had to ask permission to use the bathroom and could only use it at designated times. Since some of the staff was annoyed we needed to use the restrooms, they started to limit the amount of water we could drink. 
Later, I read an account by a parent saying her daughter was given Haldol, a medication given to people with schizophrenia, which wasn't prescribed to her. I looked up the medication to see if there were any side effects, such as facial twitching, and sure enough, this was one of the major side effects. A girl with schizophrenia named Emily had left the program not much earlier than when I got there. She later committed suicide after being subjected to more frequent but similar types of abuse, including sexual abuse. End quote. This next survivor testimony is from a woman named Xander, and it really highlights the fact that these programs were used like conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is a dangerous practice that targets LGBTQ youth and seeks to change their sexual or gender identities. This practice has been discredited by every mainstream medical and health organization and can lead to depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, and even suicide. Over a dozen states have enacted laws to protect LGBTQ youth from conversion therapy. When Xander was 13 years old, she told her mother during a family therapy session that she was bisexual. Xander became extremely emotional after coming out, but she said her mother was cold. A few years later, on May 10, 2007, around 2.30 in the morning, two large men burst into her bedroom. Quote, I started screaming and crying, as in my mind I was sure that these two strangers had broken into my house and were going to abduct me, rape me, kill me, or in some way harm me. They immediately told me that if I did not shut up, that they would handcuff me. I was not in any way being violent or threatening. I was reacting in fear for my life by being vocal and hoping that someone would come to help. I had no idea what was going on. I stopped screaming, still in fear for my life. They started going through my closet digging out clothes because I was only in a nightgown. They still had not explained what was going on. I asked, frightened, what they wanted from me trying to see if I could in some way appease them and get them to leave. They then explained that they were going to take me to a school. It took me a second to understand what they meant by this, as this was an extremely bizarre way to introduce a child to a new school. It then occurred to me that this was what my mother had arranged for my brother several years ago when she had him shipped away to Cross Creek. End quote. These men that barged into Xander's room were from Teen Escort Service, a for-profit company whose job is to rip away teens from their beds at night and take them to their quote-unquote schools. Xander was forced to wear a belt around her chest, and the male held onto this belt so there was no chance of her attempting to run. She was led around like this, like a dog, at the airport in front of thousands of people, from the moment Xander arrived at Cross Creek Manor in Utah, quote, I was treated as though I was broken, dirty, and inhuman. During my stay, I saw many others treated this way. I had never spoken to R, the program director, before, and my first experience with him was horrible. Side note, I'm not exactly sure who R is, but we can assume that this could be Robert Litchfield, one of the founders of Cross Creek. Quote, he asked me why I was there, and I told him all the things that I'd done that could be possibly perceived as bad. He yelled at me, saying that I was lying and that I didn't love or care about my parents. I was shocked and confused, unsure of what I had done to deserve this treatment from someone I had just met. 
The only thing I can think of that I possibly could have left out was my attraction to other females. In one of the parent-child seminars we were made to attend, my mother shared with me that this was one of the biggest issues that caused her to send me to Cross Creek. Not the drugs, not the sex, not the issues with school, but just the fact that there was a possibility that one day I might fall in love with a female. End quote. Xander was assigned a Hope Buddy shortly after she arrived. This is a teen who's been at the facility much longer and is meant to show newcomers around and teach them the rules. When Xander mentioned her past relationship with a girl, the Hope Buddy told her to stop. They weren't allowed to talk about homosexuality in any form, unless they're in therapy. When Xander did have therapy sessions, the man told her she did have a choice about who she was attracted to and that this was just a teen phase in her life. She should just ignore these thoughts and feelings, so one day she can marry a nice boy. These notions that sexuality is a choice, and that one should not be attracted to their own gender, was perpetuated by all of the staff and every facet of the program. Cross Creek claimed that they weren't a religious program, but Xander claims that God and the Bible was referenced on a regular basis. They were shown religious videos, forced to pray, etc. The parents weren't informed about the program's religious influence, and the children were punished if they told them. Xander stated, quote, In addition to shaming people on the basis of sexual orientation, they taught children that sex was evil and damaging outside of marriage, another blatantly religious notion. We were forced to regularly watch videos involving horror stories of abortions gone wrong, shown gruesome pictures of STDs, that had been left unattended for long periods of time, and told that if we had sex before marriage, we would likely die or get some sort of horrible ailment. Rather than promoting safer sex methods, we were shown that abstinence was the only option that would not result in death or unwanted pregnancy. Rigid gender roles were also a big part of the Cross Creek way of life. Many of the rules were extremely gender-based, Boys were allowed to crack their backs and knuckles, though girls were not, because it was unladylike. Boys got meal portions double the size of girls. Boys were allowed to use more curse words than girls were. The list goes on. I'd also like to mention how many times I saw staff and administration tackle and restrain children when it was completely unnecessary. So many times I saw kids simply refuse to go to gym class or get out of bed and as a punishment, they were violently tackled, restrained in a painful position, and taken to a small isolation room, where they were usually watched by two or three staff members. This is also what they did when a child harmed themselves. This method is extremely violent, and I remember at least one incident that happened when I was there, where they tackled a girl and restrained her face down against the ground. As a result, she got rug burn on her face, to the point that she was bleeding and had visible scabs on her face. Another time, a girl shared that being tackled and restrained gave her flashbacks of a rape she'd experienced, to which the program director responded that he felt no remorse for it and that it was really her fault for doing whatever she'd done to be restrained. By putting my faith in this system, I internalized all of the stigma, shame, and religious beliefs forced upon me. I believed that maybe if I had just suppressed my sexuality, as well as ignored my obvious attraction to girls, 
that maybe all of this would go away. My body and subconscious reacted to this. Shortly after arriving at Cross Creek, I stopped getting my period for about eight months. This was apparently a common thing that happened at the program when girls first arrived, as their bodies were reacting to some serious stress. I also started wetting the bed shortly after arriving at the program. This has not been an issue for me since the age of three or four. This bedwetting issue continued until I left the program. After I graduated, it stopped completely. End quote. More and more survivors are speaking out about their experiences at these troubled teen facilities, but there are many who can't speak up at all. One of those teens is Naomi Wood, who died at a faith-based restoration home in Lakeland, Florida. On February 4, 2020, 17-year-old Naomi was taken from her home in Vermont to the Lakeland Girls Academy. The program they provide is known as Teen Challenge. The residential school is for girls aged 13 to 17 who are struggling with any kind of issues, like poor academic performance, depression, parental defiance, eating disorders, rebellion, etc. According to her brother, quote, My parents sent Naomi to Teen Challenge because they were promised the school would help my sister with depression and complex PTSD. Upon arrival, girls are given two large packets of rules and are expected to memorize and follow them immediately. The communal bathrooms have no doors, no privacy. Cameras are installed so staff can monitor the girls. If a girl is perceived to violate a rule, no matter how small, they're ordered to write out a Bible verse several hundred times. Girls may also lose their ability to write or call home or may even be denied from seeing their parents, who are only allowed to see them in person once every two months. Hannah, a 13-year-old girl, attended Lakeland Academy for 11 months, up until September of 2020. She was there at the same time as Naomi. She described the program as oppressive and compared it to being in prison, as like being in a cult. Hannah stated, quote, There would be working disciplines where you had to scrub a toilet, clean the floor with a toothbrush. We already had chores, but if you got a working discipline, it would be an hour long. You'd have to scrub something with a toothbrush. Usually, it would be the shower room floor, which was covered in mold, or our ruined toilets. Most girls would stay at Lakeland for 15 months. However, time could be added if staff believed that the girl had violated rules. If a girl had been there for less than six months and violated rules, Hannah claimed they could be restarted, meaning they started their 15 months all over again. Shunning and humiliation was used through coded bracelets. Certain colors meant no one was allowed to speak to the teen wearing them. Hannah stated, quote, Anytime they didn't like what was going on, they'd put us on silence, which means you can't talk, period. For almost the whole month of August, we were on silence, so it really did feel like a prison. Girls were only allowed to openly communicate once they received a blue bracelet, or if they were seen in a group of girls wearing blue bracelets. Hannah said the only girls that received these blue bracelets were the ones that they had felt they had brainwashed enough that they wouldn't say anything they weren't supposed to say. If you listen to my episode on the Children of God cult, this is literally a strategy that they would use as well. They would put signs on the children's necks stating that they were on silence and no one was allowed to speak to them 
The adults would also use children they trusted that were brainwashed to spy on other children and report back to them. It makes a lot of sense that Hannah was comparing this program to a cult. All the teens were pitted against one another and you couldn't trust anyone. A former student named Jalen told a local journalist that talking about their quote-unquote past lives was forbidden. Girls couldn't talk about or use cell phones. They also couldn't talk about social media, and they were punished for talking about music if it wasn't Christian music. If they wrote letters to the parents about the abuse or shunning, it would be thrown out. Staff monitored phone calls as well, and would literally disconnect calls if a girl said something they didn't like. A lot of girls sent to Lakeland Academy were sent there to treat their addictions, but according to former members, they received no treatment for their drug use. They were just given pamphlets and told, God is your treatment, God will fix you. Hannah stated, quote, Basically, our parents paid tens of thousands of dollars to get something you could read out of a church pamphlet. Hannah's parents were told she'd get counseling every week, but she only received two counseling sessions throughout her 11-month stay. And in one of those sessions, she was specifically told not to talk to Naomi Wood any longer. Hannah's mother, Marilyn, paid $70,000 for her daughter's stay at Lakeland Academy. $20,000 of that was paid immediately up front, and it was money she had planned to use for retirement. Hannah says girls that go to Lakeland Academy for drug addiction end up using more drugs after they're released. Girls who had family issues before end up hating their parents after they leave and not trusting them at all because of the teen help program. On May 18, 2020, Naomi Wood became physically ill and was vomiting. She continued vomiting and feeling unwell into the night and into the following evening of May 19th. Instead of taking her to the hospital, staff prayed over her. They made her get out of bed and eat soup, which she couldn't hold down. Around 6 p.m. on the 19th, Naomi Wood was found unresponsive in her room. Staff called 911 and began performing CPR until EMS arrived. Naomi died before she could reach the hospital, at just 17 years old. An investigation by Polk County Police and DCF turned up more disturbing information. Naomi had been complaining to staff about chronic stomach pain for a month before her death. Instead of giving her medical attention, they gave her Pepto-Bismol approximately 20 times. A medical examiner ruled that Naomi died as a result of seizure disorder and that the manner of death was natural. Because of this ruling, the Polk County Police refused to file charges against anyone at Lakeland Academy. However, DCF did find that there were instances of neglect on behalf of their staff. Specifically, there were verified findings of inadequate supervision and medical neglect at the Academy. The family of Naomi Wood was obviously shocked. Naomi had experienced isolated seizures in the past, but the Academy never reported any of these ongoing health issues to her family. A girl named Anna was Naomi's roommate at Lakeland Academy up until her death. She stated, quote, If we needed to see the doctor, you pretty much knew you just weren't going to. You could fill out requests, but you kind of just automatically knew it wasn't going to happen. The night of Naomi's death, Anna helped move her mattress from the top bunk to the floor because, quote, I thought it'd be easier for her to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Hours later, Naomi was dead. 
After Naomi's death, parents started pulling their teens out of the teen help program, and by February of 2022, Lakeland Academy finally closed its doors for good. Naomi's father, Al Wood, said it's long overdue. Their family didn't find out about the details surrounding her death until the Florida Department of Children and Families released the report over a year later. He told ABC News, quote, To send somebody there and to find out later that she was not physically taken care of, it's beyond what we should have to endure. His son, Namaya, said, quote, It was the first time we were made aware of the fact that she was suffering chronic pain for over a month, had been vomiting for at least 36 hours. She'd be alive if she was brought to the hospital, even hours, or maybe minutes before she was found unresponsive. Al Wood added that they would be filing a lawsuit for negligence very soon. And quote, We found out a lot of disturbing things that are not being dealt with appropriately, and people need to know about it. They haven't taken any responsibility for Naomi's death. That's the bottom line. They could have done something. They didn't do what they should have done, and now our daughter died because of it. End quote. Two months later, during the second week of May, Naomi's family and Paris Hilton were among a group of people that visited Washington, D.C. There, they and many other families spoke at a press conference arranged by a nonprofit group called Unsilenced. They called for legislative action on youth facilities and warned parents about the dangers of these programs. Naomi's brother stated, My parents trusted Teen Challenge to provide Naomi with at least basic medical care. Instead of helping Naomi, Teen Challenge staff would end up causing her death by ignoring her repeated requests for medical attention. Untrained staff, little to no oversight, and a lack of accountability are all too common at the therapeutic boarding schools like Teen Challenge, Lakeland Girls Academy. We hope something good can come from Naomi's death, and we hope that Congress will finally act to protect children in residential treatment facilities so other families don't have to suffer the kind of unnecessary loss, pain, and heartache my family experiences every day. Paris Hilton spoke afterward and thanked him for sharing his sister's story. She stated, quote, Naomi's death is a heartbreaking example of hundreds of preventable deaths due to neglect or physical abuse at the hands of the troubled teen industry staff who claim to care for and provide mental health treatment to over 120,000 youth every year. And to add insult to injury, taxpayers are spending an estimated $23 billion a year to place children with disabilities, special education students, foster youth, and other vulnerable kids in these often dangerous, traumatic, and sometimes even deadly facilities. I'm hopeful that once you hear these stories, you cannot unhear them, and I expect Congress to take long-awaited action. They know this problem exists. No more sweeping this human rights issue crisis under the rug. We are not playing politics with children's lives. The next generation of America is counting on you. We will not give up. Children and teens continue to face abuse of all kinds, and even death, at these facilities. These causes of death include suicide, medical neglect, homicide, deaths while attempting to escape, and more. In July of this year, seven-year-old Jaseon Terry died from positional asphyxia. His death was ruled a homicide. Terry was killed at Bellwood and Brooklawn, a house in Louisville for foster children. The two staff members involved in the homicide have been dismissed, 
but there's been no word about anyone being charged with this child's murder. In September, his foster parents decided to sue the facility. The suit alleges that unknown individuals or employees at Bellwood and Brooklawn assaulted and physically restrained Terry. He suffered multiple injuries, including positional asphyxia, which led him to being unable to breathe and rendered him unconscious. The state has stopped placing children at the facility for the time being, but it has not been shut down. The investigation is still ongoing. If you want to learn more about these teen programs and what they're really about, I highly suggest visiting unsilence.org. They have a list of program deaths dating all the way back to 1934 and all the way up to this year, the most recent one being Terry at the time of this recording. This nonprofit group is doing so much to bring awareness to the situation and fight for legal action. There's also a Vice documentary that interviews survivors that has really good insight, so I'll link that and other resources below if you want to check it out. Paris Hilton has a documentary out about her experience as well. It's called This is Paris on YouTube. I'm not sure if it's free, but I did see at least a few minutes of it for free on her YouTube channel. I'm definitely not done talking about the troubled teen industry, this is just one episode. I'm going to be doing another episode eventually because there's so much info that I didn't include, and there is one man in particular that I want to talk about that has been charged with a slew of crimes. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and thank you so much to Daniela Duran, Lex Danata, Elizabeth Fernandez, Fifi W, and Brian Canib. Again, thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.